This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour today. This Friday, the 3rd of March. I'm Cassie Health, and there's a lot on today in South Australia. Soon we'll head to the SA Submarino Expo at Burra. But up next, I'll look at why sheep producers in the southeast are selling their sheep across the border in Victoria rather than at South Australian sale yards. If they know that they can avoid it and if there's a, uh, a process or a conduit that they can still sell their product and, um, and not be flagged for it, then um, they're looking for that avenue. I'll have more on that soon. But first up, uh, some big news really. Rail on the Eyre Peninsula could be up and running by harvest 2024. Viterra has joined with Australia's largest freight operator, Horizon, to push for having rail freight back on the EP. The two companies have submitted a formal application to the federal government for funding for the upgrade of the rail network between Port Lincoln and Cummins and Cummins to Woodna and Kimber. Viterra Australia Chief Operations Officer James Murray spoke to Brooke Nindoff about the application. Yeah, so we've been working on, I suppose, the feasibility of reopening the Air Peninsula Rail, so going from uh, Port Lincoln through to Cummins up to Woodna and then Cummins through through to Kimber. So effectively reopening that line and starting to, to transport grain uh, back on rail again. And uh, our partners, Horizon, who have recently acquired one rail, uh, they've been fantastic in having an appetite to, to grow their business and, and certainly re-look at these. So what we're looking at is the upgrading of, of the existing network um, to narrow gauge, which is what it was. Uh, we worked through probably seven or eight different options from standard gauge rail linking it uh, through to Wyala. But as we worked through the feasibility, we think the best long-term uh, and viable option is to upgrade the existing network, uh, minimum kilometres 60 uh, 60 kilometres now loaded, which is significantly above what it was, uh, and trains are around 3,000 to, to 3,500 tonne. And we see that as a really great benefit for, for growers, the community, uh, and also the environmental and economic impacts of it as well. You've both uh, come together and submitted a formal application for federal government funding. Is it looking at funding completely from federal government or would it come from other areas as well? So the funding, uh, so from a total cost perspective, that uh, we've applied for is about $220 million, uh, to, um, to do the project. And what we see that really is a partnership between the four parties, so that being Horizon and ourselves contributing, but also it'll require federal government uh, as a first step and, the, and then state government as, uh, as well. So we certainly see it as a partnership between the four parties. This has been in discussion for a little while now to try and reinstate EP Rail. Where have the discussions gone since it started up again? Uh, look, so it's, I suppose the end point of that is, is the application to the federal government. We've been, I suppose, having some uh, good discussions with the state government uh, as well. And you know, I think uh, as part of the business case requirements when you go through these uh, these submissions, I think you know, we've certainly had uh, support from and an appetite uh, from the state government, but now working through the, the business case elements uh, with both the federal and, and state will determine whether the funding um, comes to fruition. What will it mean for Air Peninsula growers to have rail back again? Look, there's a lot of benefits uh, to growers, particularly with the efficiency that, and the productivity that gets created by putting 
grain back on rail and particularly you know, the upgrading of the network. And in simple terms, what that'll, that'll mean is that there'll be higher prices uh, for growers because you're pushing more grain out in the front end uh, of the shipping program before the northern hemisphere crops come on. Uh, that's when there's a, a pricing premium in the market for grain. You then combine that with uh, the reduction in, in freight rates or, or supply chain fees as well. Uh, and that'll certainly, we've got a history of passing that back to growers. You then combine that with, the, I suppose, the social elements as well, uh, from reducing the truck movements, uh, which is approximately 42,000 truck movements off the road, and then the greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with that as well. And you know, if you talk more broadly about uh, the economic impacts, obviously job creation through uh, the construction phase, but then also when rail is back up and operational as well. So we see there's absolute value for, for growers in, in this um, project, as well as in the community and uh, as well. I guess all those those positives there for growers would have been seen back when rail was going, uh, back when it for, uh, when it, sh- it shut down. Why now does it need to be back again? Um, why why push for it again if it was you know it was shut down and now you're looking at getting it back again? Look, it's, it's a good question. I think one of the things is that with the upgraded network, it actually has additional capacity. So. The previous network, yeah, I think uh, most of the Peninsula listeners will, will know that it uh, was really inefficient. It was um, you know, maintaining that, that that infrastructure uh, was at such a condition where, I'll give an example, it was taking 27 hours for the train to go from Port Lincoln to Kimber and return. Yeah, we now see that as another you know, be an eight to ten hour trip. So, the network versus what it was versus this upgraded option, you know, it's a really suitable long term. Um, you know, we're, we're both Horizon and ourselves are look, uh, making a long-term commitment here as well, and, and the efficiencies attached with upgrading of this line is what's what's that, that's what's driving the difference in the value proposition for growers. Would there need to be significant infrastructure upgrades at, at Viterra sites as well to cater for the rail? Look, we'll be making investments in in the on-site infrastructure, so that's both through uh, fast rail uh, loading facilities at uh, Kimber, Redow. Woodner, Lock, and then as well as Cummins, and then also uh, inloading, fast inloading facilities at, at our Port Lincoln facility as well. And I guess, uh, James Murray, a time frame, when could people see trains uh, on the EP again? So depending on the uh, when the funding, or if the funding is approved firstly, and what the timeline is on that, will ultimately determine uh, when the, uh, the project will commence and, and complete. But if we work through a normal sort of budgetary cycle of when that's likely to occur, which was hopefully in May at some point, uh, we expect that we can have uh, this up and running before harvest next year. So in the 2024-25 harvest, that's when we expect to, to have the project completed and the trains operating. I'm sure a lot of people would be pleased if that does end up happening, if they were able to get that up and running by harvest 2024. But still a lot of hoops to jump through between now and then by Terra Australia Chief Operations Officer James Murray just outlining their plans to Brook Nindorf. To sheep now, and some South Australian farmers are preferring to sell sheep across the border in Victoria. That's because local agents in the border community say the current approach to monitoring by the Department of Primary Industries and Regions, uh, particularly around foot rot, has been a bit onerous on producers who are crossing the border to avoid red tape and potential fines. Mount Gambier Combined Agents Chairman Ben Jones says the intense monitoring of sale yards has been noticeable. I suppose from 
whether it be a personal point of view or a combined agent's point of view, cumulatively, uh, we've noticed, you know, over the, the last flush period, the last sell period of, um, of sell-off of lambs, that we're, we're seeing you know, a higher rate of attendance of um, uh, primary industry inspectors going through our yardings and um, and flagging uh, quite a number of sheep or lambs that have seemed to be suspect for foot rot, but they're not proven at that point. Um, they're still, you know, at that point, they, they then need to send swabs away and then have that... Uh, the response come back from the swab, but um, I guess as far as that actual process goes, there once the uh, the inspectors have, have looked at a, a particular pen of sheep and they deem them to be a chance or, or, or a risk, then they'll placard those sheep. And as a result of that, where we're finding that um, that vendors are uh, are looking to do what they can, I suppose, within reason to avoid detection of foot rot. Look, there, yeah, if they if they know that they can avoid it, and if there's a uh, a process or a conduit that they can still sell their product and um, and not be flagged for it, then um, they're looking for that avenue. Yeah, yeah, because anecdotally, I've heard you know producers will, I, I suppose, perhaps be pulled up if a sheep ha- has got a limp or something, you know, yeah. fairly innocuous like that. Um, Persa sure. may suspect that to be something more like a foot rot strain, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what does it mean then for producers if if They've got a, a pen there of sheep at the sale yards, and one of them has a limp. So Persa sort of takes that pen. Um, what kind of penalties could they potentially face if if they are found to have foot rot? Well, if you know, if, if we're talking in a, uh, a store environment, um, so restocking lambs that you know, uh, to the on the actual day, those sheep, you know, or those lambs, should I say, could be reduced in value. You know, anywhere. Look, let's say for instance, if they're worth you know one hundred and fifty dollars without any um, without any fold as such, they might be. They might be sold for 100 or 110 dollars because they've been flagged as such. That's you know from from an economic point of view, I suppose that's and, and it can't be said across the board. Like I'm generalising, but but certainly if there's a known issue with uh, with sore sore lambs, then they're going to be a lot cheaper and, and cost the uh, the producer money. So producers, if they sell them in Victoria, um, what what is the situation there? How does it differ from the South Australian example? Well, it seems to be that as far as monitoring of the uh, of the disease and uh, inspection, uh, it, 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 look, I, I, I don't live in Victoria, but from what I understand, it's nominal or it doesn't happen at all. So, um, and I can tell you, you know, I know of um, sheep that have gone from South Australia into Victoria, sheep or lambs that have been you know, known to be suspect, and there's been you know, no repercussions from being sold in uh, open markets in, in Victoria. Those sheep have gone through the system without being flagged or without uh, producers being flagged. Uh, there's even been some situations where our store lambs have gone over the border into Victoria, being purchased um, unbeknowingly by uh, by South Australian buyers and landed back into South Australia, you know, with foot rot. So, you know, at the moment, I, I suppose as far as the uh, the issue goes of South Australian, you know, trying to uh, to control the the, uh, the problem, it's sort of lost given that proximity that we have to the border. In that there's different regulations either side of that borderline, and um, and it's not helping with uh, with controlling the problem at all. Ben, what would you like to see happen here from an agent's point of view in terms of you know working with Persa and and a framework that actually achieves the result of reducing or eliminating foot rot? Yeah, look, again, I mean, uh, it's probably more a question for a, uh, a vet. But as far as I go, look, whether it be a zoning system that, that's brought into place within the state, our um, atmospheric environment down here in Mount Gambier is, uh, is different to the northern parts of South Australia. Um, as a result of that, you know, where, you know, the way I view it, we're always going to have a... Uh, uh, to combat an issue with uh, with sheep and feet. So, look, as far as a solution to it, I think either, you know, I think the way things are operating at the moment, we need to be more proactive than reactive. At the moment, we're capturing in a sale yard centre. That's, you know, I think we need to be more uh, on farm, 
uh, prior to the point that um, that the product is going to the market and an education. And then I, I would hope from that, that from a management uh, point of view, from a vendor management point of view, that that will filter through. And I, I think that that could have more influence than um, the current regulations that are in place at the moment. Combined Agents Chairman Ben Jones speaking with Liz Rymel. And uh, there have been a total of 45 detections of foot rot in South Australian flocks up to and including Monday this week, the 27th of February. This compares to 35 flocks in the same period last year. So they're putting this increase in detections largely down to wetter and uh, longer foot rot season in much of the state with that weather that we saw through spring. But as foot rot is a notifiable disease under the Livestock Act, PERSA staff are required to look for and report foot rot if it is seen during their activities at the sale yards. And there are producers and potential buyers that value the stock from sale yards where inspectorial services occur. This is uh, according to a PERSA spokesperson. And uh, these activities are included in the foot rot program and are supported by the South Australian Sheep Industry and reviewed annually as part of the program. And the department is discussing with South Australian agents ways of alleviating the movement of sale sheep into Victoria, including looking at alternative biosecure options for sheep through the uh, through the sheep sales through South Australian sale yards. So a bit of activity happening in that space. Uh, so we will keep an eye on that. But staying with sheep, Australia's Agriculture Minister says the government is committed to ending live sheep exports. Last year, the trade, exclusively from Western Australia, was worth $85 million. Today, Murray Watt will appoint an independent panel to advise the government on how and when to ban it. Uh, Yeah, well, today I'm going to be announcing in Perth uh, the next stage of us implementing the Albanese government's commitment to phase out the export of live sheep by sea. Uh, This was obviously an election commitment that we made, and in fact, we've actually taken it to the last two elections. Uh, And what we're announcing today is a four-person panel who will undertake a consultation process over about six months um, to work out how and when we should implement this commitment Um, There's obviously a lot of views in the community about how we should implement this commitment over what kind of time frame, and that's exactly what this uh, panel will now be working on. Uh, We've come up with a really good cross-section of skills, including representation from WA, from agriculture, from the public sector and from animal welfare to make sure that all views are heard about how and when we should implement this commitment. Who do you expect this committee to, this panel to consult with? I'd expect this consultation to be very broad ranging. Uh, We do want to make sure in particular that people in Western Australia have a strong say on this because, of course, Western Australia is the only state that is exporting live sheep by sea at the moment. Uh, But I intend this consultation to be nationwide uh, and include everyone from farmers to processors to exporters to people concerned about animal welfare Um, We really want to make sure that we get a good cross-section of views about how and when we should implement this commitment. Industry seems quite united in appealing the ban, saying it's a red line issue and that all livestock or all animal industries should be concerned about the precedent this sets. Have they got a chance in overturning the ban? Um, I can understand uh, the concerns of industry and this is a big change and that's why we've already committed that we would do it in an orderly way Uh, Both the Prime Minister and I have made clear that we won't be implementing this commitment by the end of this term of government because we know that it will take time for the industry to adjust. Uh, But the consultation will not be looking into whether we should do this. 
We did make that election commitment. We were elected to government, and now it's important that we carry out that commitment. But we're very open to hearing from people about how and when we should do this commitment. Murray Watt speaking with Kath Sullivan. He's the Federal Agriculture Minister. And that panel includes former RSPCA boss Heather Neal, former Northern Territory MP Warren Snowden, WA farmer Sue Middleton, and the former head of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Phil Glind. And you can read more about that online at abc.net.au. It's 21 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but before then, in a first for Australia's apple industry, three Tasmanian orchards are trialling insect fertility control to rid the industry of the major pest, codling moth. The insect is responsible for decimating apple harvests by directly attacking the fruit. Dr Sally Bound, lead researcher at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, says the team has released 700,000 sterile mouth moths over the last four months. Codling moth is a major pest because it damages the fruit rather than the leaves. So any fruit that it attacks is um, unsaleable. And orchards can lose 50 to 90% of their fruit in a really bad year if, if controlled is not adequate. Can you so, explain to me what the public might see uh, from a codling moth on an apple? Um, they'll see little holes with little bits of what we call frass on on the outside on the skin and when they cut the apple open they'll see tunnels through the apple and if the moth is still in there sorry if the grub is still in there they'll obviously see the grub as well or the larva. And is codling moth much of a problem in Tasmania? Oh yes it's pretty pretty major problem in Tasmania some areas are worse than others but yes it's it is a problem in all areas. And has it affected commercial quantities of fruit? Yes it does um, in a bad year, as I said, it can, you can have quite a high loss of, of um, fruit. Well, tell me what you're planning to do. Uh, well, we have been releasing this season, we've been releasing sterile moths on a weekly basis in three test orchards down in the Huon Valley. So we import our moths from Canada um, where they have a, a program where they rear the, the moths and, and sterilise them. Um, so we're importing from Canada and we release in the orchards. Uh, it can take most of the day to do the release. Um, so we're releasing around 3,000 sterile males per hectare. Over a period of time? Yes. Yeah, so we're going, we started the end of October and we went through to mid-February. So, and weekly releases. So the program works by flooding the wild population with big numbers of sterile males and obviously this will reduce the number of fertile eggs. That's right. While the sterile males can still mate, obviously there's no progeny produced, so it, it reduces, over time it reduces the population in the wild. You wouldn't see any results yet. No, it's a bit early. Um, we're hoping we might start to see a drop-off next season. We are repeating the process next season. So by the end of two years of releases, we're hoping that we'll be seeing some good results. And obviously you've, you've looked around the world at different projects. Um, have you seen this sterile codling moth technology work elsewhere? Yes, it's working really well in um, Canada. They have around 94% control and they've actually also managed to reduce their pesticide use for pesticides that they're using to control 
the codling moth, um, and they've reduced that by 96%, which is which is a win-win situation for growers and the environment. Wow, that's and fantastic. Yeah, and New Zealand are also importing moths from from Canada, and they're very successful in New Zealand as well. So by the end of the second release, you hope to see a significant reduction? We are hoping. It can take several years, so we've got our fingers crossed that we will be seeing results after year two. Dr Sally Bound from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture speaking with Fiona Breen about releasing sterile nail codling moth to reduce the impact of the pest on apple harvests. Right across to the weather now to find out what's in store for the weekend. Uh, first weekend of autumn, Senior Forecaster Jenny Horvat has the details. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Looks like it's probably quite a typical autumn weekend, would you say? Yeah, look, it's going to start off um, pretty stable, um, but we do have this change coming through on Sunday and then things should settle down into a very autumn pattern for um, the next week. But today, pretty clear skies across most of the state. It's starting to break up a bit in the south. It was another cloudy morning across our southeastern districts. So still a little bit of cloud hanging around the southeast, bottom of the Fluria, Kangaroo Island and pushing up to those exposed eastern coasts on Air Peninsula but pretty much elsewhere it is sunny skies. Still got our high pressure system to the south of the state so still keeping us in those southeasterly winds um, but we will see those shift a bit more easterly and northeasterly tomorrow as that high pressure system drifts off into the Tasman Sea for Saturday. We could see a little bit of fog around the agricultural area tomorrow morning and out sort of on our western districts as well, um, but not expecting too much with that. A bit of warmth coming in, so any fog should disappear relatively quickly on the Saturday there. And with those winds shifting a little bit more northerly, temperatures should generally be a little bit warmer than they were today as well and then yeah we've got this change coming through on the Sunday so we are looking at potentially some hot very hot temperatures ahead of that change especially across our eastern and northern districts through there so we are keeping an eye on those fire dangers they're not looking too bad at the at the moment but then we've got this gusty southwesterly change that will start to come across from the west of the state on the Sunday there so initially probably not coming coming across um, the WA border um, around sort of midnight in the early hours of Sunday morning through there and then slowly sort of progressing its way across the state during the the day so sort of crossing our western districts during the during Sunday morning and then reaching maybe those central districts more in the in the afternoon and maybe not quite getting right up into the far north of the east of the state until the Monday there so still some very hot conditions in the far northeast of the state on Monday before that change moves through um, Monday and then things really sort of settling down get that next high developing out out west and keeping us in a bit of a, a southerly airstream. Another little front that will clip the southeast of the state sort of later Monday into Tuesday. So really just keeping those showers going mostly across the southern agricultural area for the start of the, the week through there. Our western coast could see a little bit of activity as well in that broadly sort of west-southwesterly airstream. And as we head into the middle to late part of the week, we will really see those showers um, easing and contracting back just to those southern coasts again, not dissimilar to what we saw this week. So, um, yeah, it's pretty pretty mild and pretty stable. And just having a look at some of those rainfall totals that we are expecting up until midnight Tuesday. So really we're not expecting any rain for the remainder of today or Saturday. And it's really with that front on Sunday and then just that 
next one on on the Monday there, and then that just that moist west south westerly airstream early in the week, keeping those showers going. So those rainfall totals we are looking at until midnight Tuesday, generally less than a couple of millimetres across the agricultural area, but we could see falls of two to five millimetres about our southern agricultural area, and maybe some isolated higher totals there of around sort of five to fifteen millimetres, and that would really be sort of around our southern hills and southern um, southern coasts and ranges. The other thing I should mention with that change moving across on Sunday, some of those eastern border districts, so um, east of the ranges there, but south of about Renmark, could see a bit of afternoon thunderstorm activity as that comes across as well. Thanks for that. Jenny, Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology in the far west of New South Wales. Uh, it's going to be mostly sunny in the upper west and a slight chance of a shower in the southeast in the afternoon and early evening. Could be a thunderstorm as well overnight, getting down to 18 to 22 degrees. Daytime temperatures, though, reaching the mid to high 30s. The lower western will be mostly sunny. Again, slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon and evening. Thunderstorms about in the afternoon and evening as well. Overnight, down to 13 to 17 degrees, but the daytime temperatures are reaching the low to mid 30s it's coming up to 12 30. you're listening to the country hour for more stories from across the country go to abc.net.au slash rural on abc radio adelaide south australia and broken hill this is cassie huff cassie huff Hello, it's lovely to have your company this Friday afternoon. With the River Murray floodwaters receding, some busted levees are starting to be looked at. One near Wall Flat north of Murray Bridge wasn't damaged as badly as first thought, so pumping has started to dewater the floodplain and get that water back in the river where it belongs. So I'll have the details on how that's going. And you might think it's impossible for the Country Hour to speak about UK musician Harry Styles, but you would be wrong. He has had a bit of an effect on a very niche industry in Australia. The feather boa industry has had a boom in recent years, but where do all those feathers actually come from? We import them and they're all a byproduct. So um, all of the feathers that we get are a byproduct from um, the animals either being used for meat or um, as for the ostrich, they're also used for their oil and their leather as well. I'll uh, delve into that interesting world. I haven't really thought a lot about the feather industry, but we'll get into that in the next half hour as well. But first, here's news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this this afternoon, a 51-year-old man from the northern suburbs of Adelaide has been charged with the murder of Andrew's farm man, Geoffrey McLean. He was arrested by major crime detectives yesterday and was also charged with assault, serious criminal trespass and attempted murder in relation to other attacks on Mr McLean last year of 49-year-old northern suburbs woman is also being questioned and is expected to be charged with murder and other offences. An executive at the Royal Adelaide Hospital says a family forced to bring a pillow from home for their son was due to miscommunication. A family posted to social media saying they had to drive home in the middle of the night to retrieve a pillow for their son, who was receiving overnight surgery at the RAH. The post said the son was offered warm towels as an alternative. And the Premier has given strong support to the Police Commissioner Grant Stevens as talks are well advanced to reappoint him. Peter Malinowskis says the contract negotiations for another five year term are a matter between him and the commissioner and when those are finalised they'll be announced at the appropriate time. More news at one o'clock.
Thanks for that, Matt Coleman, there with your latest in news headlines. Well, today is a, one of the big days on the annual South Australian Stud Merino calendar. They uh, have been celebrating last year 100 years of the South Australian Merino Breeders Association in this state. Uh, and also, there is the annual Stud Merino Field Days on today at the Borough Oval. And Demetria Panagiotaris has headed along. Good afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon, Cass. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So how's That's the day cool. going so far? Oh, it is shaped up to be a beautiful day. It's really sunny here. There's a lot of people about, which is fantastic. Uh, I actually just passed on my way over here uh, some of the, the foundation students from the Borough Primary School who are very excited to be here. Of course, it's a big part of, of their community. Um, so they were walking around uh, and and looking, not touching, the fluffy teddies. Um, so, obviously, lots of stud merino uh, sheep around at the moment. Um, but here I am with John Daniel. He's a little bit less white and fluffier than the other the other people around me. John's the chairman of the Merino Centenary Subcommittee. Uh, John, how have you found the day so far? Oh, it's been very good, thanks, Demetria. Yeah, we've had a uh, had nice few people through, uh, Bit, bit bigger crowd than we perhaps wondered if it might be so things are going well the sun's out and the sheep look good and people are happy yeah they definitely are um and what sort of relevance and importance do expos like today hold for the future of the wool industry oh well it's a great day for people stud breeders and commercial breeders alike to uh, visit as many studs I guess they can in a centralised display like this and uh, see what's around in the way of uh, sheep uh, and, and types to suit them and to suit their country and uh, all that sort of thing and with an eye to the future of uh, the ramp sales later on down the track and later in the year. Wonderful. Now, it is a particularly special day because today marks the official book launch of the 100 years of the South Australian Stud Merino Sheep Breeders Association. It's a big title. Um, I was looking through the book earlier. It's beautiful. It has so many pictures and information about the industry and, and family stories. And I guess at $100 a day, a dollar a year is pretty cheap, which I found was not a very original joke earlier. But you had a huge involvement in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, look, the book's... Uh something that has been very we've been very privileged and honored i would think to be part of the production of the book and uh, and have input into uh i guess it's been uh, possibly three years in the making uh we've obviously had covid in amongst that which probably prevented uh, you know face-to-face meetings there for a while and uh, all that sort of thing but look it's uh, given us the opportunity to present a, uh, I think it's a 275 or six page book, uh, terrific history of, of our association and uh, the marvellous efforts of, you know, the stud masters of bygone era and the, and, and the really good stud masters of today and, uh, you know, there's articles in there on the various things like the sheep classes of the day and, and scientists that have been involved and... Uh, and the very important women that have been part of our association as well, or our industry, yeah. And uh, if someone wanted to get their hands on the book, where could they go to grab it? Well, I think they could get in touch with uh, Merino SA. I, uh, I get in touch on our, uh, I think it's uh, info at merinosa.com, I reckon, is our uh, contact. And uh, you would be only too happy to uh, uh, supply anyone with a book, yes. 
Beautiful. Uh, yeah, it is a very special achievement and also a fantastic day. And uh, like John said, if you want to get your hands on the book, get in contact. Uh, thanks, John. That was John Daniel, chairman of the Marino SA Centenary Subcommittee. Thanks for that. Deep energy of Taurus there. I'll let her go away so she can check out some more of the, the sheep there because it is a very big day for sheep judging and a chance for people to look at, at some of the, the big rams that could be on sale later in the year. We'll head to uh, a different part of the, the state now where work has begun to fix the levees in the Lower Murray region with short-term uh, levy repairs and dewatering on the floodplain, starting at Wall Flat today, which is a little upriver from Murray Bridge. Now, there were four farms flooded in this levee breach. Uh, it breached in January, and there were concerns about how long it would take before the pastures could be re-established and stock returned to the region. But one of the affected farmers, dairy farmer Sam Martin, is at the pump shed today looking at uh, what's going on. Good afternoon. How are you going? I'm well, thank you. So there was a bit of a levee breach not far from Wall Flat. How are things looking there now? Uh, so it breached on the 2nd of January and, uh, yeah, filled up within probably 48 hours. Um, the river's dropped about two metres now and we've just started pumping, pumping the water back out. How much area was covered by the floodwater? Uh, the dairy itself wasn't covered by floodwater but uh, about 100 hectares of our uh, solar production was. So you say the river's dropped, what, two metres. Does that mean that it's below the levee now and you're able to actually mend the hole in the, the levee? Yeah, so the levee didn't end up actually breaking uh, as deep as what we first thought and uh, it's sitting about a foot above river level now. So what is happening today? Uh, we've got coats higher and... South Australian Dairy Association organised five flood pumps to yeah, start pumping pumping the water back across the levee bank. Back from the wrong side to the right side, where the water should be. Yeah, that's right. So how long is that going to take? Uh, we're hoping it's going to take about a month, ideally three weeks. Yeah, three weeks to a month. And how's the country looking? Is that going to be enough time to rescue the pastures and whatnot that's there? Uh, when not thinking there'll be any, any pastures left, but it will mean that we'll have time for it to dry out uh, before we get our winter crops in. How is the floodplain looking? Uh, it's a bit hard to say yet because it's still under about two metres of water. Um, where it has receded, um, there's not much left, but two of the old guys have said that this should be a good year. After the 56 flood, they had uh, a bumper year all the extra topsoil put on from the flood. Yeah, a few people have said that. I guess it is a sort of sedimentary area. It's used to flooding and, and the deposit, that, the alluvium sort of soil that, that comes from that. But are you concerned about salt or anything like that? Weeds that might have come down? Uh, I'm sure there will be weeds. We have had a pretty good program in, in place prior to the flood and I'm sure we'll... There's ways of managing it. Um, they work with a really good agronomist in Murray Bridge and I'm sure he'll be able to help us, help us out with, there, with that. And how do the pumps actually get the water that could be 500 metres from the river? How do they get it back to the right side of the river? Uh, so we, we had salt channel drains. We call it salt channel drains, but um, like water table drains um, to keep the water table lower uh, when we're throughout the rest of the year. Um, 
usually, so and we do pump some water back into the river, a minimal amount usually, but the, the channels are set up to be pumped out, so we're just uh, at the pump shed now. Um, they're putting the last pump in, um, in, into that channel, suction line into that channel, and, yeah, everything should, should drain into that. Is this the first area of the Murray lands where there have been levee breaches that have been able to get pumps on to try and get the water back to where it should be? Yeah, I believe so. It's probably one of the smaller areas to pump off. There are a few other ones that they think the levee bank will be intact somewhat, but the water hasn't receded quite as far as Wolf Lap. How do you feel seeing these pumps go in? Uh, it's very, very much relieved. Um, it's, it's been a, a bit of a stressful time uh, with the water, with the flood once it did flood, and we wouldn't have been able to do anything, but, you know, now... We, we are able to do something and seeing, seeing something happen is, is really uh, a big relief. And knowing that, you know, with, with the pumps that they have got here, that, you know, we get our winter crop in, you know, when it flooded, we didn't know, you know, was it going to be six months? Was it going to be a year? Was it going to be two years? No one really knew. Um, obviously, there's a big difference between, which potentially three months until we're back on there and, and two years, that was sort of a worst-case scenario. So, um, yeah, it, it just makes the impact of flooding and water loss so much, so much less, yeah. And how many cows do you have? Uh, we're looking at 500. And you've been able to find feed and, and adjustment or whatever for them? Yes, yep, yep. So we had, a, um, had it all set up, ready to go. Uh, fortunately, we had the... The time to know, you know, the water was coming. There was a chance of flooding, so we had plenty of much, plenty of time to uh, prepare for it. Um, I hear stories of farmers upriver, you know, the flooded overnight, and what they dealt with it would have been so much worse than you know, what we had to deal with because we had the time to prepare for it. There are four farms on Wall Flat uh, that got affected, and that's probably where it's helped that we all get along really well together and have all been trying to help each other out best we can with land and things like that. Great. Well, yeah, all the best and uh, hopefully it is a speedy recovery for your land and you can get your your pastures up and running and your cattle back onto your property. Thanks so much for your time today. No worries. Thank you. Dairy farmer Sam Martin speaking there about the pumps that are going in on his property to get that water across the levee back into the River Murray because, uh, as he was saying there, the... the um the levy there wasn't actually as damaged as they initially thought. Now, the, the state government is uh, largely working on this with the, the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association to implement a coordinated approach to these short-term levy repairs and dewatering. The Department of Environment and Water is also working with engineers and landholders to undertake levy assessments to look at what repair solutions may be feasible once on-ground works are possible. So we'll keep across that. This is quite a small irrigation area that they've been able to get cracking on, so it's good news for those four farms that were flooded when that levy breached in January. Speaking about floodwaters, they've uh, well and truly made their way onto floodplains across Australia, across the east and southern part of the country, and the environment has been soaking up the benefits. So what does this mean for environmental watering? It could mean more water for Chowla this year. That's an area about 40 kilometres from Renmark next to the Victorian border. Commonwealth environmental water holder Dr Simon Banks explains the effect the floodwaters have had on the environment and what the environmental water 
the plans are going forward. We're observing the third successive La Nina event in a row, which has only occurred four times since 1900. We've seen uh, record-breaking floods in the majority of the Murray-Darling Basin valleys. The impacts of these floods have been significant for basin communities. With the devastation that comes uh, from the floods, uh, there are important benefits for the rivers and wetlands of the basin. The floods have provided an important opportunity for the rivers and wetlands to be rejuvenated and perhaps even reset at a scale that we cannot contemplate uh, with environmental water. With all this flooding, uh, the question I'm asked most often at present is how are we using our environmental water? Across the basin, my immediate focus has been on colonial water bird breeding and mitigating the risks associated with water quality. The flooding conditions have triggered hundreds of thousands of water birds to breed across the basin, mostly in New South Wales. Um, but this is some of the most widespread water bird breeding uh, that we've seen in the basin for over 20 years. Environmental water has been used to maximise the success of this breeding. We're topping up wetlands uh, to keep water around nests, which uh, provides protection from predators. We're also uh, inundating nearby wetlands to ensure food and habitat is available for the fledglings. And this gives them the best chance of survival. What, what are we seeing um, specifically, you know, downstream in, in those South Australian regions? Yeah, look, down um, in the South Australian system, so um, what we've seen is, again, the floodplain, extensive areas of the floodplain, um, such as the black uh, box woodlands, the river red gums um, that are receiving a, a drink or have received a drink for the first time uh, in many decades at Chowler. Um, water for the environment has been used to keep uh, core areas healthy. Uh, and the flooding has seen rejuvenation in parts of Chowler that haven't been able to get water, uh, that we can't get environmental water onto. And since, you know, the wet conditions, um, you know, that they've also supported native fish like callop, um, you know, that have suffered sort of many years, I suppose, of low flows in the, in the South Australian Murray. More broadly in South Australia, um, the high flows um, from the floods have um, helped lower salinity levels. Uh, which is good, particularly in the Coorong, and um, that that's led to good um, good growth of rupia and uh, and seagrasses in that system. So, what does that speak to? I guess your role. You know, you talked a bit about topping up those wetlands, particularly in New South Wales, for the waterbirds. Um, what about yeah, further downstream? Is is there any environmental water happening further downstream, or is it still, um, I guess, quite fresh from the floods and watching the environment unfold in its natural state? Yeah, look, it is it is very fresh after the um, floods have uh, passed. But um, look, we'll keep an eye on uh, conditions, and um, and water for the environment will be used again on Chowler um, to continue sort of nature's good work and and ultimately build resilience ahead of uh, dry conditions returning. Uh, we'll continue to play an important role in um, trying to uh, support fish spawning um, or habitat and or habitat and food to ensure that uh, our native fish uh, continue to sort of, you know, get the success that nature has been provided, nature has uh, provided. Absolutely. And uh, Dr Simon Banks, you you mentioned Chowler as a site that, yeah, is receiving environmental water. Is there a a timeline on when that's happening and, and what that looks like? Oh, look, at the present time, we're sort of planning, you know, what the future of that uh, looks like. And again, that will be based on sort of working with our delivery partners to sort of assess conditions. uh, And then we sort of stand ready to use water. And again, our our focus perhaps is more on those core areas that that we can water regularly. 
uh, as opposed to sort of the flood, which has been able to get to those areas that we just can't um, provide water to. You mentioned, uh, you know, building tolerance and resilience ahead of future drought events. Um, what what sort of role does the environmental water holder yourself or, or your office have to play in this and um, ensuring that, you know, the Murray-Darling Basin system remains healthy? Look, uh, I, I think that's exactly the, the uh, environmental water uh, plays a really crucial role in those uh, in those dry times. But right at the moment, on the back of the floods, we need to assess conditions and then we need to make decisions around, you know, do we top wetlands up? What do we do to uh, build build that resilience so the ecosystems are healthier as as we lead into uh, into drier conditions and then during when those drier conditions eventuate we where you know if we've got water available then uh, we can continue to sort of uh, support the sort of core parts of wetlands through through those dry conditions. Dr Simon Banks Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder speaking with Anita Ward. It is 11 minutes to 1. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. A Kaelin ore mine near Poochera has been given approval to proceed from the South Australian Department of Energy and Mining for the Program for Environment Protection and Rehabilitation. Andromeda Metals received the final approval for two-stage regulatory project as part of its Great White Deposit project. Kaolin can be used for products like paints, ceramics, cosmetics and fibreglass. And Brooke Nindorf spoke with the CEO and Managing Director, James Marsh, about this recent development. Very exciting day for us today. Spring first started on this resource over 30 years ago now. So it's been a long time in the making getting, getting through to a stage where all those approvals done and dusted. No, it's a, it's a massive job and a huge undertaking by the company. So very happy with the team. They've done an excellent job here. This is the last major milestone now in the uh, in the, the, the march towards operations. So now we've got the final uh, approvals through. We've just got to finalise the funding requirements and then um, we're looking forward to breaking ground. What happens when it comes to funding? So at the moment we, uh, we had to wait till we got the uh, this environmental sign-off first and then... Uh, we're talking to a number of potential financers. Um, we're, we're looking for debt funding at the moment to try and get the, the gap that we've, you know, we've made public. We need about 50 to 60 million on top of what we already have, um, which is actually quite a small ask uh, when you consider what this uh, project is worth. So we're just finalising the options there now, and um, that's the last piece of the puzzle. When it comes to breaking ground at the mine, what does it mean with that in terms of, of employment in the area? Um, initially, we're looking at about 40 direct employees um, on the mine site and um, support and services for that. That will grow. We know the plans are to, to grow that once we start. Uh, and the knock-on knock on employment in the area is, is well over 100 jobs to, around the local area. So um, you know, for that part of the uh, Air Peninsula, it's a, it's a very significant impact on that. Has there been interest from, from locals in particular for, for jobs there? Definitely, yeah. We've we've held a series of community days there you know, at Streaky Bay and at Putra, and um, both places we've had uh, we've been sometimes overwhelmed with people who are very keen to get jobs um, on the mine site or supporting the, the mining services. And you'd be surprised how many people already work in the mining industry are based in those areas, but fly and fly out at the moment, uh, and they are 
very happy if they could get a job where they don't have to fly and fly out. They can just drive down the road and uh, get to work and go home at night. James Marshall, we've, we've spoken before about what this uh, kaolin ore can be used for in things like paints and ceramics and porcelains and uh, cosmetics. Is there the buyers out there for this this product? Certainly are, yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, the stage one plant that we are planning to build is a 50,000 tonnes a year capacity of products. It's going to be two, two leading products there. It's going to be the ceramics product. Um, this is um, what we have in the ground there at um, Putra and the Great White is a very high quality, very consistent material for porcelain and, and the real top quality porcelain. And, and the supply of those materials for porcelain uh, around the world are drying up. So we're coming online just at the right time when demand is still increasing, yet supply is reducing. Uh, we also have a very exciting new product that we're bringing on stream, which is our concrete additive. Uh, this is uh, something we developed and Don has developed this over the last three, four years. Um, we've got IP protection on it and it's a, it's a new product that will not just allow cost savings in concrete, but it will allow decarbonisation of concrete. So those are the two first products out of stage one plant. Uh, but as you mentioned, we do have a tremendous resource in the ground there. We've got a uh, very large, very consistent, high quality resource, lots of optionality. Uh, and we can move into other areas like paint, polymers and all sorts of other uh, cosmetics high value areas in time but we want to get the first stage of running first and get ourselves established what's the time frame of, of when things will, will get started james yeah good question um now we've got the uh the, the uh, this regulation has been met and uh signed off we now have to um, sort out the environmental bond which is the next stage and and then we have to finalize a few um minor uh, discussions with the landholders just to work out uh, fencing and that sort of thing, subdivision of land, and then we plan to get on on the ground within the next month or so. And then the plant items have already been ordered, so long light and long lead items have been ordered. Um, so we're making sure that everything is delivered by the end of the year. So our current time frame is that we should have the plant uh, constructed and being commissioned by the end of this year. CEO and Managing Director of Andromeda Metals, James Marsh, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And finally today, this is a bit of a, a, an interesting one for the country. He might be on his final leg of his Australian tour, but Harry Styles has left a lasting impression in every city. Not just the memories of his skin-tight leather pants, but the millions of feathers that now lay in the streets of every city he has visited. The feather boa industry has had its biggest boom in recent times. But where do all of the feathers actually come from? Lucy Cooper filed this report. He might not be a country icon like Slim Dusty, but Harry Styles does in fact have a connection to an agricultural production system. No, it's not the fact his first job was in a bakery, but rather his penchant for fluffy feather boas. Thousands of his fans adorned colourful boas to his shows in Australia over the past week, which a spokesperson for Big W confirmed to the ABC saw sales surge. With the arrival of Harry Styles in Australia on his concert tour and World Pride celebrations in swing, searches for feather boas on Big W's website have increased by 394% and sales increased by 114% in the past two weeks, with pink proving to be everyone's top pick. It's not just the big retailers reaping the rewards of the boa mania. We're definitely um, getting an influx of orders um, of all our feather boas. We've got three different styles. Um, and, 
Yes, so we assume they're all going to Harry Styles' fans. That's Shelley Maloney. She's the owner of an online feather retailer. So where exactly do these feathers come from? Are they synthetic? Are they real? We've got three different styles. We've got the chandelle boa, um, which is made out of turkey feathers. Um, then we've, that's sort of probably our thickest boas. Then we've got the ostrich and marabou boas. And then we've got just the plain marabou, which are the thinnest boa. They're the fluffiest. As with any animal product, ethics is always brought up. Shelley says she likes to make conscious feather purchases. We import them and they're all a byproduct. So um, all of the feathers that we get are a byproduct from um, the animals either being used for meat or um, as for the ostrich, they're also used for their oil and their leather as well. Well, obviously we don't want any animals to be harmed um, just to get their feathers. Um, so they're all um, animals that are consumed on a sort of daily basis. So it's good to see that the feathers actually get used instead of just being discarded. So if you want to purchase real feathered feather boas, it's clearly easy to get your hands on. But what about synthetic ones? I've never actually come across any synthetic feathers. We often get asked that question, but I've never actually come across them myself. Now, I'm sure it wasn't Harry Styles' intention, but the extreme volume of boas sold has prompted calls from animal rights groups for feather transparency. Often they can be sourced from countries that um, don't have uh, proper policies to protect animals um, without proper regulations. So, um, And some of them even engage in practices where um, live plucking um, is carried out. So um, Humane Society International does not support the use of feathers in in fashion or otherwise. Um, They can often be used to accessorise and things like that as well. Um, Because, yeah, you don't know where um, they're sourced from um, and, um, yeah, you'd never want to be um, supporting um, the cruelty that's involved in in live live plucking. So um, there's so many alternatives that um, there's, yeah, other, other options out there. Georgie Dolphin an animal welfare campaigner for Humane Society International. Miss Dolphin says the organisation does not support the use of feathers in fashion and is calling for greater awareness around feather origins. We don't want people to be um, inadvertently supporting animal cruelty when they don't realise that they even are. So, um, yeah, if they, they are aware, then they can, uh, it'll help them with their purchasing decisions and um, they can make yeah, animal-friendly choices, um, which is yeah, a huge win. We'd definitely suggest um, partying with those, those non, non-animal products for, for any um, boa experiences. <laughs> Georgie Dolphin, an animal welfare campaigner for Humane Society International. Finishing that story from Lucy Cooper. And I've had a, a message in from someone who went to Harry Styles' concert saying that feathers don't hold their dye very well. We were covered in dye after the event. But fortunately, it washed out very easily. That is good to hear, but uh, I hadn't even thought about the world of feathers. So uh, interesting to know where they come from. That's all we have time for in the program today. But uh, there's more coming up on your radio this afternoon as we approach one o'clock. 
Have you downloaded the ABC Listen app yet? Make sure you tap on the heart and make your local ABC radio station your favourite. We are one of your favourites, aren't we? Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.